you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8. As you turn there, uh, I obviously don't look like Blake. Uh, for those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and it is a joy to be with you guys this morning. Uh, with a lot of our students out of town and taken off after graduation and finals, restaurants will be available, uh, streets will be empty, and uh, I also don't have a lot of chances to speak to the families of our campus, and I just wanted to say to you guys, as the college pastor, thank you. Thank you for investing in the students that are here at Blinn and at Texas A&M University. Uh, last night I got to marry a sweet couple and got to, in that moment and in that wedding, see just a sweet picture of what it looks like for families to adopt students, to mentor them, to disciple them, and to walk with them. Had two families here at our Southwood campus who had really walked with, discipled, and mentored two students that have graduated and are now taking off, and it was just a joy to see the body of Christ together. And so to you families uh, here at our Southwood campus, I just wanted to say thank you as a college guy. It is a joy to see you guys serve this body, to serve our students, and to be a part of the life of this church. And it is hugely significant. We're going to be Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, uh, verses 1 to 13. If you can follow along with me. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Earlier this spring, I had the opportunity to read uh, a bestseller that was released a few years ago called The Tipping Point. Uh, it was a fascinating read by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. In it, he discusses and he looks at trends and epidemics that have broken out throughout our country uh, over the last 50, 60 years and, and trying to find factors that have led to uh, these epidemics breaking out. He looks at viral diseases. He looks at fashion trends. He looks at popularity of TV shows, of kids' books, of movie lines. He looks all across the map and looking for what are some factors that really cause epidemics to break out. In particular, he's looking for something that he calls the tipping point. Uh, that moment in time in which an epidemic that was existing begins to just break out and unleash on a culture. And all of a sudden, in that one moment, in that boiling over moment, an epidemic breaks forth and everything all of a sudden changes and it just breaks forth and it unleashes on a culture. As he looks at that, he looks at uh, New York crime that declined in the 80s. He looks at uh, all kinds of things uh, from the uh, book line, Yaya Sisterhood, to the kids' show, Sesame Street. What caused these things all of a sudden to just break out? And as he looks at each of these epidemics and their tipping points, he looks at, in a sense, three different factors that often converge on, to cause a tipping point. One of which is often the factors or the agents of an epidemic, the kinds of people that help an epidemic break forth. The second factor that he looks at is the epidemic or the disease, the infection itself. What are the kinds of things that spread quickly and rapidly and massively? And then lastly, he looks at the environments that these epidemics break out in. And he asks the question, not just who, but what are the kinds of environments that, that often can receive and allow an epidemic to break forth? And he looks through those three factors. And yet, really, the, the thing that really fascinated me more than anything is when he centers in on the kinds of epidemics themselves that actually break out. In particular, he notices that in certain kinds of epidemics, at some point, the epidemic, the disease, the fashion trend itself changes. And in that change, all of a sudden, it breaks out and it hits its tipping point. 
In particular, he looks at the flu uh, of 1918 that killed 20 to 40 million people worldwide. Interestingly enough, that flu virus that broke out in the summer of 1918 that took 20 to 40 million people had actually already broken out in the spring. But something happened in the spring in which the flu strain itself changed. And in its change, all of a sudden it became far more deadly and it broke out in the summer of 1918. Even more so, the AIDS or the HIV strain that emerged in the 50s that then would tip in the 80s. It had already showed itself in the 50s, but something changed in the 80s. And it wasn't the actual certain patterns uh, in which certain people were interacting culturally and physically, but it actually was that the HIV strain itself that emerged in the 50s dynamically changed in the 80s, and all of a sudden it hit its tipping point and it broke out worldwide. Not just in the United States, but worldwide in the 80s. And what we're going to see this morning, I think, from Hebrews chapter 8, really, I think, is what we could say is Christianity's tipping point. In Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to find, I think, what is, in a sense, Christianity's tipping point. What we're going to find is that a certain, in a sense, harmless strain of Judaism mutated and changed dramatically, according to Hebrews 8. And what broke forth was a strain and an epidemic that would break across all of Asia and Europe and would go from a dismissed cult in the first century church to the official religion of the Roman Empire just three centuries later. What happened? What caused that dramatic change? We've been walking through the book of Isaiah all spring as Blake and Brian have been preaching through it. And you guys have noticed that the nation of Israel failed miserably to obey as God had called them to. In a sense, Judaism wasn't that infectious. It hadn't caused the nation of Israel to obey and it hadn't broken out across the entirety of the world. And in many ways, therefore, they were experiencing all kinds of judgment. And so their prophet Isaiah was saying, watch out, your disobedience is going to bring about judgment. And yet, despite the judgment that's coming, one day restoration and renewal will come, and I'm going to change things so that you will obey as I've desired you to obey. And the prophets pick that up, and we'll look at that a little bit later this morning, and the prophets will pick that up and say, not just that one is coming who will change men and women, but ultimately that one who will come will cause a change within men and women and cause a change to Judaism that will lead to an epidemic that will sweep out across all of Asia and all of Europe. When Jesus Christ comes and he dies and he resurrects, it greets a change to all of Judaism and a change that will make a harmless strain of Judaism incredibly infectious as Christianity will break out and spread across all of Asia and all of Europe. And yet as we end this spring semester and as we begin to transition in the summer, I don't know about you, but at least for me, as I look at my spiritual life and as I look at my life in general, I'm tired. Uh, This spring has ground me down and I'm a bit tired. And as I look at my spiritual life, particularly, it doesn't seem that supernatural. It doesn't seem that unique. It doesn't seem that transformational. And as we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, I think we're going to find that our spiritual lives ought to look so much more different than they do in light of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And so if you hear at this point in the spring as we transition to the summer and you're tired and you're wondering why isn't your spiritual life even more than you think it could be, I think Hebrews 8 will really answer that and delve deep into that for you and I this morning. Hebrews 8. And as we pick it up, what we're going to notice is that this passage is going to be all about Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. Uh, In chapter 8, the the writer of Hebrews is talking about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But he says, now the main point in what has been said, well, what has the writer of Hebrews been saying? (laughs) As we jump into chapter 8, I want to quickly kind of back up for you guys and give you a little bit of a review of where the writer of Hebrews has been. Uh, No matter where he's been, what he's been saying throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews, though, is this, that Jesus Christ is supreme, that he's better than anyone, anything else that has ever come. Jesus is better. In particular, he says it this way. 
He says, particularly in chapters 1 and 2, that Jesus Christ provides the best revelation that you and I will ever find. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to the Old Testament prophets and even to angels themselves, and he says, Jesus is better. Jesus provides a better revelation than angels did and than the Old Testament prophets did. And so if you want to hear God, listen to Jesus. Look at Jesus if you want to know God. Chapters 3 and 4, the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus to Moses. And as he compares Jesus to Moses, he says that Jesus brings a better rule than Moses brought. Jesus will bring about a kingdom that is far better than Moses, than Solomon, than all the kings of Israel. Chapters 4 and on, really through the section we're in even, is all about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It is the nature of the priesthood of Jesus Christ that is superior to all the other priests of the Old Testament. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the prophets, and he's better than the priests of the Old Testament. Jesus is better. And he provides a better redemption, a better rule, and a better revelation than anything they found in the Old Testament or than any other religion. Jesus is superior, and he's supreme over all else. In particular, as we look through chapter 8, really where the writer of Hebrews will take us is zeroing in particularly to the nature of Jesus' priesthood this morning. In particular, where he kind of starts us out is, in a sense, the priestly place of Jesus Christ. Um, In fact, he says, notice he says in verse 1, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Notice the place where this priest resides, at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. Notice in verse 2, a minister who is in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. This priest resides not in a man-made tabernacle, but in a heavenly God divinely made one. This priest resides in a far better place. In fact, notice the comparisons he begins to make in verse 4 of the Old Testament priest and this priest Jesus. Verse 4, now if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Verse 5, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, foresee, God says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. What the writer of Hebrews is drawing back upon is that the Old Testament priests, as they constructed the tabernacle, as they served in the tabernacle, they were serving in a shadow, a copy, a pattern of what the priest that was going to come was going to serve in Jesus who was going to serve in a divinely made tabernacle, a superior tabernacle. And the Old Testament priests were serving in but a shadow, but a copy, but child's play in a sense. A lot of y'all know, um, my wife Marcy and I have a 19-month-old. Her name is Caroline, um, and this is her. Uh, about month 18, we've noticed in terms of development, man, things start to click. She's learning letters. She's learning so much. We've also begun to notice that her imagination is beginning to take off. And so this is her riding on our little horse patches, um, also playing somewhat at the same time in her little kitchen, all right? So uh, she has a little fake horse. She has a fake little kitchen. Uh, she even has some fake stuffed dogs. And what we've noticed is that in her imagination, she can treat them as if they're the real thing. So she sees Marcy, my wife, or I cooking in the kitchen, and then she runs to her kitchen and begins to cook something up. Or she'll ride on a fake horse. Or uh, my favorite is she has a stuffed dog, and she will pet that dog as if it's real. And she'll pet the ground to get the pet dog to, or the stuffed dog to come to where she's petting, just like she sees me do with our real dog. I'll pet the ground, and then our dog will come running. She does the same thing with the stuffed dog. I have to kind of tell her, no, no, the dog's not going to move. It's not real, right? Uh, our little girl has an amazing imagination. Uh, she can play dollhouse. She can play with fake uh, cars and fake horses and fake uh, kitchens. In many ways, I think what the Old Testament priests were doing was a lot like what our little kids do that have an imagination. They were playing in a fake tabernacle, 
in a sense, a pretend priesthood that was but a shadow and a picture of what was coming, which is going to be Jesus's priesthood. The Old Testament priests were but child's play for what Jesus was going to do. And more, more so, what we're going to find is that it wasn't just that Jesus was going to be in a superior place, but he was also going to bring about superior promises. The significance of place is hugely significant in most of our lives. The superiority of someone's place often denotes or implies the superiority of who they are. And so when we walk through, if you've ever noticed, the first class people board the plane first. And then for whatever reason, as you and I board us commoners, they parade us right through those first class people, right? Just to show us their superior place to make us realize that we are less than them, right? This is also why when you watch a basketball game, you notice the people who are sitting courtside, because you know that they're better people than us, right? Who don't sit courtside. Uh, this past week, I enjoyed watching uh, my Mavericks uh, destroy the LA Lakers. Um, but I also loved watching courtside to see who was there, who were the popular, famous, superior people who were sitting in superior places, right? Now, the superiority of Jesus' place is going to lead to a superiority of his priesthood, in particular, the superiority of the promises that he's going to bring. Notice verse 6. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. This priest is superior not just in his place, but he's superior with the promises that he brings about. And the superiority of his promises are going to lead to a tipping point in what Christianity will become and what you and I have entered into that is going to bring about an epidemic that will sweep across the world. Notice the promises. Notice the superiority. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. What in the world is the writer of Hebrews drawing upon here? He's going to quote back to the prophet Jeremiah, but what is he saying? Notice when he begins to talk about the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. In verse 6, he talks about he has a better ministry, he has better promises, but in the middle of that, he says he has a better covenant. The superiority of his covenant implies and necessitates and allows the superiority of his promises. But what is a covenant? As Blake has been walking us through the series through uh, Isaiah and then even through uh, the other Sunday on uh, the whole thing about eschatology, I know the covenants came up. The covenants, which are God's agreement with his people. Covenants are but an ancient version of the way that you and I make agreements. You and I sign them with our, our signature, or we sign them with a swipe of a credit card. Uh, at least for ancient Near Eastern cultures, they sign them with the exchange of salt, exchange of sandals, or even sometimes the shedding of blood. And so as we look throughout the Old Testament, we see all kinds of covenants made. In particular, the writer of Hebrews is going to begin to draw a comparison between two covenants, the old covenant, a first covenant, and a new covenant. An old covenant that the nation of Israel experienced, which was we also refer to as the law. And that law, that first covenant, was what the Old Testament priests served at the altar and they made sacrifices on the basis of. But the writer of Hebrews is going to say that this Jesus, this superior priest who's in a superior place, comes with superior promises because he has a new, different, and better covenant. In fact, notice, why was there a need for a new or better covenant, a second covenant? He says in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, so there was something insufficient with the first covenant. Even more so, we find at the end of verse 9 that the nation of Israel did not continue in that first covenant, and therefore God did not care for them. In fact, as God walked through the nation of Israel, their failures to obey the law led to judgment, led to discipline. If they obeyed God, they found blessing. 
If they disobeyed God, they found cursing. And so we see that principle illustrated over and over again through the series through Isaiah. And the nation of Israel is going to face impending judgment because they've disobeyed the law and they've forgotten God. And so they failed to walk with God. And so God comes to them, according to the prophet Jeremiah, while they're in discipline, while they're in judgment. And he comes and says, I'm going to do something better for you. (laughs) Another covenant is going to one day come for you, and it's going to be a new covenant. Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel speak of this new covenant to come in the future. And we don't get all the details particularly about it. Isaiah is looking forward to the future of a period of restoration and renewal. And he says that the one will come who will bring about that covenant. Isaiah doesn't know much about it other than a person is coming who will bring that covenant. The prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah pick up that discussion and say, here's the covenant. Here's what it will be that he'll bring. Notice, though, he says there was, there was a covenant that was first that was not faultless. But notice even more significantly, verse 8, notice really where the fault lies. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, he says, and here's the new covenant. The greatest fault throughout the Old Testament for the nation of Israel was not necessarily with the law that Paul will say in Romans 7 was good. The greatest fault, though, comes with the people. The worst ever breakup line that you can ever hear as a guy when you're single is, it's not you, it's me. All right. It happened to me one time in college. I asked a girl out. She said to me, it's not you, it's me. Uh, I'm not really in a place to date. And guy never really knows what to do with that. That's also the worst line that you ever hear in movies. It's not you, it's me. Well, God is not so polite. God comes to the nation of Israel and says, it's not me, it's, it's you. <laughs> you have the problem. All right. And in fact, not just that you have the problem, but what I'm going to do on your behalf is fix it. And so the new covenant, what we're going to see first promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and now that the rite of Hebrews will pick up and attach to the covenant that Jesus brings and that Jesus brings about is a better covenant because it has better promises because the promises themselves are going to fix the problem with humanity. In many ways, as I grew up, uh, one of the, the scenes that occurred at our dinner table over and over again was that my father would serve, or my parents would serve me all kinds of vegetables that then as a four-year-old, eight-year-old, and now even as a 32-year-old, I still hate. Um, I can't stand the taste of corn. I cannot stand the taste of sweet potatoes. And asparagus also makes me gag. All right, so uh, you can pray for my wife. Uh, her cooking vegetables and serving a healthy meal in our home is a very challenging task with me, all right? She's got to find unique ways to serve vegetables so that I'll like it. But a scene occurred all the time growing up. Uh, my parents uh, would put food on the table, and this expectation my parents had that I'd eat everything on my plate. And since I couldn't stand the taste of corn, as I began to forcefully eat the corn, I would try to wash it down with milk, try to wash it down with any liquid that could uh, remove the taste of it. But even that was never enough, and so I would inevitably begin to gag. All right, I would begin to gag, at which point my father would conclude I was being disrespectful. He would begin to criticize me sternly and rebuke me. And the problem was, I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> What would have been more helpful is if he had given me a whole new set of tastes and if he could have made me like corn, which he couldn't do, all right? Really, if you think about the nation of Israel, when Jeremiah and Ezekiel come to them, they are, in a sense, in discipline. They are in timeout. And what God does to them is not yell at them louder and longer. What he does for the nation of Israel, he says, is, hey, I'm going to fix your taste buds. You don't like to obey me. You don't obey me, but I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm not just going to cover over your sins. I'm going to actually begin to fix things for you. Notice the insufficiencies of the old covenant. Why was there a need for it? What is it that God's going to fix as we look at the new covenant? Particularly, we find that for the nation of Israel, they had no desire to obey. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we find God saying, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. 
problem with the nation of Israel, the problem with you and I, often is that we don't have a heart, we don't have a desire to obey at times. Not just that we lack desire, sometimes we also lack ability, especially for the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 8, Paul picks this up, verses 3 and 4, and he says this. What the law could not do, God did, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. If you looked at the nation of Israel, it wasn't just that they didn't have a heart to obey God. It wasn't just that they didn't have the taste for the vegetables of obedience. But they didn't even have the ability, they didn't have the resources to obey God as he had called them to. Lastly, picking up later from the book of Hebrews, we find that it was also in the Old Testament, they didn't have the actual full cleansing from sin. Hebrews chapter 10 says it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so in the midst of all these insufficiencies, God provides a new covenant that's going to fix these things. Notice to whom it's been given. It's going to be coming in the future. He says, behold, days are coming, according to the prophet Jeremiah. The new covenant, as Jeremiah spoke, it was a covenant that could come in the future. In fact, as we pick it up in Hebrews 8, and even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is a remembrance that it is in that shedding of Jesus Christ's blood, that the new covenant has been inaugurated, that it has begun. That as Jesus Christ's blood is shed, as his body is broken, we're celebrating the inauguration of the new covenant. The promises of the new covenant that have been given that we can celebrate, enjoy, and participate in that we'll look at here in a minute. In particular, what are those promises? First, notice in verse uh, 10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. One of the first things we notice, picking up from not just from the, uh, Jeremiah, who's being quoted into Hebrews 8, but also from parallel passage in Ezekiel, is that one of the first promises of the new covenant, one of the first things that God is going to do is that he's going to begin to change the heart. He's going to provide an ability or a desire, a new set of tastes, in a sense, to obey. Not just a changing heart. Ezekiel will say that the heart of man is one that is cold and hard. And as we look at the promises of the new covenant, he's promising a heart that's going to be changed. Not just a changed heart, but also a changed ability. Notice he says, I'm going to put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. A parallel passage in Ezekiel will talk about the spirit being put within man. So now the the commandments of God that were written on tablets are now going to be written on the human heart and the spirit of God will be put within man as well. And so as we look at the old covenant, it didn't provide them the desire or the ability to obey and yet the new covenant and its promises are going to provide a changing heart and a changing set of abilities. In fact, notice as we look at the new covenant, one of the things we're going to see though is that the new covenant promises are not all established yet. Which is why we say that the Lord's Supper is an inauguration of the new covenant's term. The new covenant has begun, but we don't have it in full. And so that's why our heart at times still doesn't desire righteousness. That's why at times we don't desire righteousness. We don't desire to obey perfectly. It's also why we don't have the perfect ability yet to obey. These things have been fulfilled in part, not in whole. And so that's why our heart is but a mixed bag at times. It's why the resources and the desires and the abilities we have to obey are also at times a mixed bag. But notice what is foundational, though, is that you and I have a changed purity. Look with me at verse 11. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, Another aspect of the provision of the new covenant is that in it God will forgive sins. An aspect that you and I have now that we have a great declaration of now that if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of our sins and we have confidence of what has already been declared and already been made true. And therefore, since we have a changed purity, we can have a relationship with God that has changed as well. 
You and I have a foundationally, fundamentally different relationship with God uh, than the nation of Israel had. The nation of Israel came and had a mediator, a priest who went between them and God. They had sins that were, in a sense, covered over temporarily as we were waiting for the death of Jesus Christ that would once and for all remove sins. So therefore, you and I can come directly into the presence of God himself. You and I have a foundationally and fundamentally different relationship with God in two particular ways. You and I, I think, particularly have an intimate access to God. You and I can come directly into the presence of God. In fact, notice what the New Covenant says, that, that no one will, uh, verse 11, they will not need to teach everyone, his fellow citizen, everyone, his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. When the fulfillment of the New Covenant comes, we will not need teachers, we will not need people to teach the word of God, because you and I will all know him. Which is another reason why I think the New Covenant is not yet in full. You and I have an intimate knowledge of God. You and I have an intimacy with God that the nation of Israel may not have had. And yet we don't see this in full just yet. Not just that they had intimate access. I think the nation of Israel had an unconditional status before him as well. That you and I have an unconditional status before God. That's fundamentally different than I think what the nation of Israel had. Notice the nation of Israel's relationship with God was very, and in some ways, dependent on their performance and their obedience. If they obeyed God, they were blessed. If they disobeyed God, they were cursed. The Mosaic covenant, the first covenant, was foundationally conditional. The new covenant that Jesus brings is foundationally unconditional. You and I and our relationship with God does not change on the basis of our performance and the basis of our obedience. If we've trusted in Jesus Christ, we enter into his presence as a free gift and receive the forgiveness of our sins and our maintaining in that relationship has nothing to do with our obedience. You and I have an unconditional relationship with God. And as we walk that out, as we have a whole new set of resources as well, the question becomes, what do we do with it all? If Hebrews 8 begins to talk about a tipping point of Christianity that is a dramatic change from what Judaism was, then why do we not at times see that dramatic change in our lives? (laughs) Why is it at times that our own spiritual lives don't seem that supernatural, don't seem that powerful or transformational? What is the deal with that? Why is that the case? Where do we take this? What does this passage mean for you and I, typically day in and day out? I think a couple things. One, I think we find an expectation that you and I can find redemption. If you're here this morning, as we look at Hebrews chapter 8, and and the the entirety of Hebrews, really, is about the fact that Jesus Christ is superior, and that he offers a redemption, he offers a revelation, he offers a rule that is superior to all others. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I'll encourage you and I'll exhort you that there is not life found in anyone else other than Jesus Christ. There's not a refuge from the wrath of God found in anyone else than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ provides a salvation and a redemption and a refuge from judgment and wrath that no one else can provide because he stood in our place and he took the wrath of God upon himself. He comes with a superior sacrifice. He comes with a superior set of promises and he offers a full and final redemption. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to consider Jesus, whose death, burial, and resurrection cements forever that he and he alone has the power to forgive sins and he he and he alone provides the freedom from the grave. Life is found in him, not just in the afterlife, but life is found in him even now. And it's not just that he promises a life to come in the future, but he promises a life that is abundant in the present and therefore not just that you and I can find redemption, but that you and I ought to expect restoration. Something occurred at the death of Jesus Christ that changed Judaism forever and what caused an epidemic of Christianity to break out. His death and resurrection caused an exchange of the old covenant for the new covenant and brought forth a superior ministry, a superior set of promises that have been made available to you and I. 
And if he's beginning a change of our hearts and if he's beginning a change of our abilities to obey, then something dramatically, dramatically different ought to be coming and occurring in our lives. A restoration and a renewal is beginning now. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the judgment that was coming, but also the restoration and renewal that was awaiting them. A restoration and renewal that has begun in part now in our very lives. A restoration and renewal that is occurring in our very lives. It is but a preview, but a trailer of all that God is going to do in the future. And so that as we wrap up a spring where a lot of us are tired and the routine of life has ground us down, I think Hebrews 8 is a great passage to awaken us afresh of all that God can and is waiting to do in our lives. And as we come into summer and as we find new space, new time, new freedom in summer, I think it's a great chance to be refreshed and to be reset on all that God could and would like to do in our lives. I know for me, even uh, as our college semester and our college ministry schedule has really kind of died down for about a week now, I found new time for all kinds of uh, new uh, diversions and interest. We have a garage that's detached from our house. And in this garage, there's an aspect of our ceiling that has been caved in for about four years now. And in particular, this spring, I began to notice that aspects of the animal kingdom had been visiting our garage. All right. And so uh, in their presence, in their arrival, um, and in the birth of some baby little animals that occurred in our garage, I knew it was time to fix that hole, all right? And so with time, I began to provide new focus and new attention to something that had been lacking for a long time, and I got on it this week. And yet I think this week, and the house projects that I've had have been about a preview, I think, for many of us of some spiritual projects that we need to take inventory of. I know for me, as I finish out a long grind and a long routine and school that's ending up, I often find there have been aspects of my spiritual life that have atrophied and that have grown tired, that have grown weak. For me, more often than not, it's my prayer life. And as I look at my spiritual life, as I uh, take inventory of it, I think this is a great time in the year as we head into summer to take inventory of our spiritual lives and to ask the question, what is it that we need to focus on? If God is changing our desires and if he's provided us an ability to obey and then something significant and supernatural ought to be occurring daily in our spiritual lives. And yet for many of us, our spiritual lives look so routine, so commonplace. For many of us, our spiritual lives may not look commonplace. May they, they may look atrophied. <laughs> they may look tired and they may look weak. And I encourage you, I think this is a great time to take inventory and ask the question this summer, how are you going to use your summer well? To take time and make a plan for, hey, this summer, here is what I'd like to see grown in my spiritual life. I've already begun to take inventory of the house projects I need to do this summer. And I think it's a great time for us also to take inventory of, in a sense, the spiritual projects we have in our life to take inventory of where are we spiritually and how do we need to grow. A couple ways that we're going to do that, even here at Grace this summer, uh, the things that we'd love to encourage you to consider uh, here in the main pulpit uh, on Sundays, Blake and Brian at our two campuses are going to be walking through uh, a series on the essentials of our faith. Uh, It's a study that we have online, but we're going to kind of turn it into a sermon set. That's going to be a great chance, I think, to refresh not the basics, but the foundations of our Christian faith. With that, not just the basics of what we believe, but also some basic spiritual disciplines that accompany those basic truths. Actually, for you students that are here this summer in our college class that occurs at 11 o'clock, we're going to take a a series through the spiritual disciplines and encourage you to consider those series that we're going to do on Sunday mornings. But I think even more so as we pull into summer, I think the spiritual disciplines are a great spot to consider afresh of where am I at this point as I finish out the spring and as I begin to look at the summer. Where would I like to be? What needs to grow in my life? Is it my prayer time? Has my time with the Lord grown absent or lifeless? How can I refresh that? How can I bring new life to that? Uh, Maybe you have a great prayer life, but maybe your time in the Word has grown stale. How can you revive that? How can you refresh that? 
And I think as we come into summer, as we have great freedom of schedule, I think we need to have a plan to use that time well and to consider that a great opportunity that we can utilize. Where do you need to be this summer? How do you need to grow this summer? What are some practical ways that you can step through that? What are some spiritual disciplines that you can provide focus to? There will be great places to push your spiritual life forward and that you can grow in some practical ways. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I give you great thanks and that you've done something hugely significant in our lives. That with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you inaugurated a new covenant and a new set of promises that you've made available to us. And that as your spirit comes and indwells in our lives, you slowly but surely begin to transform us. And as your spirit comes and he resides in our lives, Lord, you've provided us a new set of abilities, a new set of resources to walk with you victoriously and to walk with you righteously. You've allowed us to overcome sin. You've allowed us not to be captive to sin. Father, I pray for us in the midst of our lives, for those of us who may not know you, Lord, I pray that you would give us an opportunity to consider you afresh this summer, to consider who you are and whether in you we can find life. And for those of us who have made that decision already, Lord, I pray that you would give us a great chance this summer to consider afresh where is it that we need to grow? How is it that you're calling us and moving us forward? And what is it that you have in store for us this summer? And maybe not just for us individually, but maybe even for our families. What is it that you'd love for our families to look like? Where is it that we need to grow and give attention to? Father, I pray that you give us a moment of clarity, that you give us some time of evaluation and reflection here over the next week. And that you'd allow us, as things quiet and as things slow, that you'd allow us to hear you afresh and to hear you with a clarity uh, that we often don't get. Lord, give us the discipline to pull away. Uh, Give us the discipline to consider and to pull away and to listen and to wait upon you uh, for you to move and for you to speak, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning, and we'll see you next week.